for being here. But uh, let's go ahead and draw our attention. We're actually going to go to 1 Timothy 1 in verse 15 to start off with. 1 Timothy 1 in verse number 15. Now, to give you a little bit of an idea of where I believe the Lord is leading me in regards to our adult Bible study class, I knew this week would be a little different with travel and people coming and going. And uh, I knew that this would be kind of a standalone uh, week. Uh, the teens are finishing up their block of, of, uh, of classes on a particular uh, study. And so the teens will rejoin us next Sunday. And then Lord willing, we'll spend the next several weeks, beginning next Sunday, on a series studying spiritual gifts. Spiritual gifts. And so Lord willing, we will start that series uh, next Sunday in the, uh, the Sunday School Hour in the Adult Bible Study class. We'll have the teens join us as well. But today, we're going to look at the remedy for sin. The remedy for sin. I hope that this will be a little bit different angle or different perspective that will uh, kind of follow up from Earl's series on the God Who. And we have spent the last several weeks, appreciate Earl uh, bringing those uh, lessons the last several weeks. But we are going to look at Today, the remedy for sin. And I'll begin with a quote from John Newton, who I believe in his testimony, he was a slave trader, got saved, and God dramatically changed his life. And he is a trophy of God's grace. And he said this, My memory is nearly gone, but I remember two things. That I am a great sinner and that Christ is a great Savior. Powerful quote. And here's a man who truly, truly never got over his salvation. The Apostle Paul is another saint of the Lord. We know the Apostle Paul well. Some would consider him maybe the greatest Christian who ever lived besides Jesus Christ himself. Uh, we would put John the Baptist up in that same category probably. The Apostle Paul never got over his salvation. It was as new and as fresh and as vibrant, and his appreciation and his gratitude was as full and as rich at the end of his life, in his dying days, as it was on that road to Damascus and the, the subsequent uh, days when God called him into ministry. And the Apostle Paul, in 1 Timothy chapter 1, in verse 15, this is a faithful saying and worthy of all acceptation that Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners of whom I am chief. Now wait a minute here. I thought the Apostle Paul was a great Christian. In maybe our circles, if I can just take a little bit of our 21st century mindset and picture Paul in the 21st century, he would be, I don't think that Paul would ever endear himself to this. I'm not saying that. But in our 21st century, superstar, celebrity, social media kind of climate mood that we're in, Somebody out there somewhere, and we know Corinthians, the church at Corinth, was trying to do this. They would try to put the Apostle Paul up into some celebrity status. The Apostle Paul would have 1.1 million followers 
all of his social media view, all of his social media videos would have 1.1 million views. You know what I'm saying? All that, right? That's the kind of celebrity status that in the 21st century we would try to give the Apostle Paul. But Paul did not want any of that. Paul was not about name and fame. That was not the Apostle Paul's mentality. And we see right here, once again, Paul realizing how great a salvation he received by the mercy and the grace of God. And how does he describe himself? As the chiefest of sinners. Now someone find 1 Corinthians 15 and verse number 9. Who will read 1 Corinthians 15 and verse 9 for us this morning? 1 Corinthians 15 and verse 9. Anybody have that? Becky Cotterman's got that up here. 1 Corinthians 15 and verse 9. For I am the least of the apostles, that I was not fit to be called an apostle because I persecuted the church of God. Here Paul sees himself as the least of all apostles. The least. He doesn't even seem so worthy to be preaching the gospel to be even be called or considered an apostle because of his past, because of his previous experience in persecuting the church. What about 1 Timothy 1 and verse 13? We're there in that passage already. Who was before a blasphemer and a persecutor and injurious, but I obtained mercy because I did it ignorantly in unbelief. Here's Paul describing what he was Prior to his salvation. And then Ephesians 3, 7 and 8. Ephesians 3, 7 and 8. Who will read Ephesians 3, verses 7 and 8? I see a hand back there, Grant. Thank you. The less, le- I say that again in that passage there, if you still have it, Grant, I'm not saying it right. The least of all saints, less than the least of all saints. Less than the least of all saints. That's how the Apostle Paul saw himself. That, that's the humility that is a man who understood the grace and the mercy of God in his life. So we see from the Apostle Paul, we see from this quote in, uh, from John Newton, we see that the measure, in a sense, of our spirituality isn't all of the celebrity status, the big megachurch numbers, and all the statistics, and the number of arenas we can pack out, and the number of views that we can get, and the number of uh, podcasts that we can publish, that's really not the measure of our spirituality at all. Really, the depth of our humility, the depth of our understanding of our sinfulness, the depth of our gratitude for the mercy and the grace of God is really a better measure of our spirituality than all the things that we want to put out there in 
lights and in popularity and to list as our successes. And we live in a world where success is measured by, I don't know, money, possessions, net worth, on and on it goes. And again, with the social media world, it goes by, I forget where the number is when you can start getting advertisements, sponsors, uh, is it 100,000 subscribers on YouTube, something like that? You can start getting sponsors, you can start getting paid for producing your videos when you get so many subscribers, and uh, it just lends itself to pride. It lends itself to, I've got to fight my way through the crowd to be the, the big dog at the head of the pack. And we have to fight that all the time because we are inherently proud and selfish people. We are inherently covetous. So we desire it. And social media does not help us because we're constantly in the comparison game. And Paul dealt with the Corinthians when they were dividing up among Paul and Apollos and Cephas, Peter, Jesus Christ, and there was, there was carnality among them. And we see the Apostle Paul, <clears throat> we see the greatest saints through all the years having a humility of their life that was measured by the gratitude and the depth of their awareness of their sinfulness and their understanding of the mercy and grace of God in their life. So, let's talk about the gospel a little bit. We know that the gospel is the ultimate remedy for sin. We know Romans 1 and verse number 16 very well. For I am not ashamed of the gospel of Christ, for it is the what? The power of God unto salvation, to the Jew first and also to the Greek. So the gospel is, yes, first and foremost, for unsaved sinners. Is it not? Of course. That is the greatest need that an unsaved person has, is their need for the gospel, their need to be saved. And all around, I can't help as we see the turmoil in our nation and we see the various celebrities and superstars and some of them are rich and famous, but they find themselves in all kinds of turmoil, often because of sinful choices, bad behavior, immoral types of actions in the news all the time. And I can't help but think God is trying to get the unsaved person's attention to repent of his or her sin and turn to Jesus Christ in saving faith. I mentioned last Sunday night my disappointment sometimes with some of these Christian apologists who they argue so well. And sometimes they're not even Christian, they're, they're conservative. But there's even Christian apologists who don't make a point in their debates to give the gospel, to give the truth of the word of God. They want to argue all of these moral statistics and common sense and biological realities, and that's good. But I remember a, a preacher who I watched several times in interviews on Larry King Live, and he said that there's three things that he was always trying to get across as he was in these interviews, these debates, and he talked about how he wanted to always emphasize the authority of the Word of God, 
that Jesus Christ is the Savior and that we are sinners in need of that Savior, Jesus Christ. And I respect that man. I have disagreements on some of his, uh, some of his uh, points and his issues. But I appreciated the fact that as he's there doing these interviews, he is trying to emphasize the authority of the Word of God, that Jesus Christ is the Savior, and that we are sinners in need of that Savior. And I remember Dr. Bob III and him being on Larry King and who was that old? Phil Don Was it Phil Donahue? Okay, I couldn't remember if it was Geraldo or Phil Donahue. But that, that same kind of mentality that the gospel was going to be proclaimed. Jesus Christ was going to be exalted. I was listening to a podcast this week, a Christian group of Christian preachers, uh, Bible preachers, and I appreciate the fact that they said no matter how much we try to argue all the moralism and the morality and the statistics, that we always come back to the gospel, that we give them the hope of the gospel of Jesus Christ. So thankful for that. But we so often see the gospel hid, don't we? We so often see the gospel, especially the hard truths of the gospel, we often see that hid. And there's this consumerist mentality, marketing mentality, where we peddle the gospel like some sort of consumer product. And that's not at all the way the Apostle Paul preached the gospel. That's not the emphasis at all in the epistles. And we see that the gospel is the power of God unto salvation. It is the remedy for sin. Okay, But is the gospel only for unsaved sinners? No, the gospel is also for saved sinners. Sinners saved by grace. The gospel is needed for salvation and for sanctification. In 2 Peter chapter number 1... And I believe it's verse number 3, 2 Peter 1 and verse number 3. Peter makes reference to the power of the gospel. 2 Peter 1 and verse 3, According as his divine power hath given unto us all things that pertain unto life, that's salvation, and godliness, that's sanctification, that's for living the Christian life, through the knowledge of him that hath called us to glory and virtue. So what does the gospel do? The gospel exposes our sin in order to bring us to salvation, but also in order to keep us in a right relationship with him after our salvation. Aren't we thankful for the gospel in our sanctification? Because we still break fellowship with God through our sin. Yes, our sin has been paid for. We're saved from the penalty of sin when we get saved. We're saved from the power of sin when we get saved. But there is this constant, progressive sanctification process that we are going through. And there's the fellowship with our Heavenly Father that is broken by sin that then requires chastening, and we must confess our sins. And He is faithful and just to forgive us of our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. So the gospel saves us, but the gospel also holds up the standard of holiness that we must be measured by. We are to walk worthy, walk worthy of the calling wherewith we are called, to which we are called. The gospel saves us, and the gospel is also the standard by which we live by. Because the gospel obviously speaks to 
Christ, to God, to his holiness and his perfection, because we are clothed in his righteousness. So we are constantly progressing, becoming more like Christ, becoming progressively what we already are positionally in Christ. Okay? So on Wednesday night, we talked about Joshua. We had a third uh, sermon in the series, a third Bible study in our series on Joshua. And we talked about the land of Canaan, the promised land. And what did Joshua tell the Israelites? He said, your work isn't done. God's given us some peace. God's given us some rest. We are in the promised land, but there's a lot of hills and valleys and mountains, and there's a lot of places that are still to be conquered. And if you don't conquer them, what's going to happen? Those Canaanites are going to tempt you with their idols and their immorality, and you are going to sin. And Joshua, in chapter 23 and 24, reminded the Israelites that they needed to continue to pursue the covenant with their God they had made, and they were to renew that. They did in Joshua 23 and 24, and Joshua once again reiterated the theme Verse of his life, as for me and my house, we will serve the Lord. And right before that, as we read Wednesday night, he said, put away the gods, put away the idols. They're out there, but there's a lot of work to be done. We're never going to reach sinless perfection this side of heaven. I mentioned this Wednesday night as well. Sorry to be a little bit repetitive, but there are some schools of thought among Christianity that there is a place of second blessing where you can have an experience with God. Some even refer to it as liquid love, and it's it's a special anointing that raises you to a spiritual plane where now you are in a greater state of spirituality for the rest of your life because you've had this second blessing. That's a dangerous thought to think that I'm looking for some sort of experience with God where he anoints me with a higher plane of spirituality. Now, I may have a calling and a public gift as a pastor, as a preacher, but I haven't received any second anointing, second blessing. I have certainly not experienced any kind of liquid love where I have some sort of experience with God that raises me to some spiritual plane higher above all of you, and I look down at you and say, okay, if you can just measure up to me. and I mean, that just, to me causes someone to be lifted up in pride, and for a pastor, it can get him in a lot of trouble, because then he thinks he's the fourth part of the Holy Spirit, fourth part of the Trinity, and uh, that's a dangerous place when a pastor gets into that. But there are some schools of thought in Christianity, there are some groups of people, and I've met some of them, they think they've arrived to a higher plane, and uh, we understand the Christian life is a constant progressive sanctification process. Work out your own salvation in fear and trembling, we read in Philippians. And we know that it is God who worketh in you both to will and to do of his good pleasure. So we see that tension. We see both of those. And so we continue in this study here this morning of the remedy for sin and the gospel is for sinners, both unsaved as well as saved sinners, sinners saved by grace, But it reminds us, the gospel reminds us that we must be confronted with our sin and regularly confess our sin. And to deny our sinfulness is to make Christ a liar. 
So as a believer, one of the evidences in 1 John of our salvation is that we are constantly aware of our sinfulness. We are constantly aware of the fact that we could fall, that sin is present with us. Though it is dead in its power, it still has influence. Clearly, as Romans 7, as Paul talked about, the things that I want to do, I don't do. The things that I should do, I don't do. I mean, he's in that constant tension, and we feel that. We may have victory over specific sins, thankfully, as saved people. Many of you can give testimony, many of us can give testimony to a specific area of sin where we have had tremendous victory, where God has allowed us to be an overcomer, but we still understand the pull of the flesh. The spirit indeed is willing, but the flesh is weak. So we see the gospel is for sinners, but we also see the gospel frees me to face my sin. My pride wants me to ignore or minimize my sin. My pride wants to go along with the world and all of its changing terminology. And there are all kinds of euphemisms now for sin that the world has adopted. And if we're not careful, we as believers, now we use them sometimes just for discretion, just out of being discreet. I get that. There are times and places, there are certain things I'm not going to describe from the pulpit or in certain places because of the nature of that. And of course, Ephesians warns us about speaking of those things that are done in secret. There's a discreetness that we must have, but we got to be careful because these euphemisms can creep up. And what is clearly fornication, sexual immorality, can in many cases just be explained away as just part of what you have to do in the dating scene. But the Bible's very clear flee fornication. For this is the will of God, even your sanctification, that ye should abstain from fornication. But a lot of Christians, so-called Christians, accept it as part of the normal dating scene. We can get into other areas. And Christians, it just seems like we're constantly just giving ground, giving rope to the devil, to the world. Just letting him have his way. And uh, we have a, a puppy, eight-month-old puppy. And you give any kind of leash to our eight-month-old puppy, and he runs amok. He runs off. Um, we love our dog. He's kind of part of the family now. But yesterday I thought, oh, Kelly and uh, Emily were coming back from a bridal shower down in Indy. And uh, I thought, oh, I'll just uh, let the dog run up and greet them. Always just stands at the door and jumps up and down and greets and never really goes anywhere. I mean, that door opened. He jumped up maybe once or twice and then shot out the door into the front yard. No leash, no nothing. And we're all yelling and I'm jumping on the ground trying to catch the dog, you know. Uh, I hope our neighbors weren't watching. But we got the dog inside. I mean, that's the proneness to wander that's in our spirit. We're so pulled sometimes, so easily swayed. We're we're not careful. We're not casting down imaginations we're not putting up that defense system system around our minds bring every thought into captivity to obedience of christ without we don't have the full armor of god and we can go on and on with the spiritual analogies and i i don't want to get too carried away here i really don't but i i fear i fear sometimes that the entertainment world has such a pull on us 
that we will allow some of the most wicked, godless, immoral people to set the values of our life because they make us feel good by their performances. And because they make us feel good by their performances, then we begin to adopt their attitudes and their values, and we begin to accept their thinking, and before long we have stinking thinking. Okay? God totally changed my music desires in six years of Bible college and seminary. And I am extremely thankful. I wasn't into all of that hard rock, ACDC, Metallica. I never liked Christian rock. But there was a certain genre of music that I enjoyed. I can walk into a store, a restaurant to this day, and a certain song will come on, and I can quote every one of the lyrics. And I'm like, how do I still know? I haven't heard that song in 30 years. But you think about it. You think about all the expletives, all the vulgarity, and a certain sound that drives that into our flesh and our appetites, and you listen to that by the dozens and the hundreds and the thousands over many years, what does it do to our minds? We begin to idolize a false view of love. We begin to covet things that God would never desire for us to have. We begin to want to experience certain feelings and pleasures that God says are forbidden or we're only supposed to have in certain boundaries. We have to be very, very careful. I cannot believe the number of Christians, if I name the artist, I cannot believe the number of Christians that I see online in the various social media accounts. Good people that we have known for years. And they have grown up in Bible preaching churches. And if I name this particular artist, they go to his or her concerts on a regular basis. They have no problem spending hundreds of dollars driving several hours, packing into a multi-hundred, tens of thousands stadium in pouring rain to get the experience and to have the feelings that this particular artist can drive by his or her music and words. And then that particular celebrity, superstar, artist, whatever we want to call him or her, just a few days after that concert is at another concert and is proclaiming the pride of Pride Month and the pride of the LGBT plus community. And there are dozens, if not hundreds, or thousands of Christians who just spent how much money and how much time to get the experience with that individual who then blasphemes the very God that we claim the very next day, going to that person's concert on a Saturday night and then coming and worshiping on Sunday, who then is blaspheming God's name at the at the the next concert. It just, it just amazes me what we accept and what we adopt, and we don't even realize it sometimes. It's so casual. The approach is just so subtle, and the devil is like a roaring lion seeking whom he may devour. And before long, we're thinking and acting and we're speaking and we're doing in our values. No wonder we are struggling with the immoral perversions of our land today 
when 40 or 50 years ago we were adopting it in its more subtle forms, but it was still just as sinful. The sexual sins that have now gone to extreme perversions, we were adopting them in their milder forms 40 or 50 or 60 years ago in our culture. And we have been mesmerized by the world. This is what we have to watch out for because we say, oh, I can handle it. When we should be saying, I'm a selfish person. I'm a proud person. That's what we have to face, the reality. We must constantly be aware of what God saved me from and is sanctifying me too. Romans 8 and verse 29. Romans 8 and verse 29. And we know all things, and we know that all things work together for good to them that love God, to them who are the called according to his purpose. For whom he did foreknow, he also did predestinate to what? To be conformed to the image of his son. That's what God is constantly doing, conforming us into his image. We go also to Ephesians 2 and verse 10, For we are his workmanship, creating Christ Jesus unto good works, which God hath before ordained that we should walk in them. Now let's also look at, in the book of Romans for a minute here, book of Romans chapter number 6, Romans chapter number 6. Verse number 1 of Romans 6. What shall we say then? Shall we continue in sin that grace may abound? So what is the Apostle Paul warning us about? We need to be aware of the sin that is out there. Not trying to continue in sin, knowing that grace will abound. No, he even uses the strongest term in all of the New Testament. In verse number 2. God forbid. May it never be. May we never think that it is okay to dabble in sin, to continue in sin, so that we can experience the grace of God in some extraordinary way. God forbid that we even think that way. And then he goes all the way down. Look at verse 21, Romans 6 and verse 21. Somebody read Romans 6 and verse 21. Earl? The end of those things is what, Earl? Death. Death. So why as a believer, now as a saved individual, why would I go back to the things that I did before I got saved, the things that patterned the unsaved life, the pattern that is the value of the unsaved life, why would I go back to that? The fruit of those things is death. Why does that mesmerize me? Why does that appeal to me? Either I'm unsaved never truly saved, or I've got some things to get right with God so that my desires are for the Lord and for holiness. Because look at verse 22. Being now made free from sin and become servants to God, ye have your fruit unto what? Holiness in the end everlasting life. So the contrast between the fruit of sin, which is death, and the fruit of righteousness, which is holiness. Clear contrast there. I must constantly be aware of what God saved me from and is sanctifying me too. 
Thirdly, the gospel motivates and energizes me to deal with my sin. If God saved me from my sin, shouldn't I be dealing with it on a regular basis? What did the Apostle Paul say? Well, Philippians chapter number 3, Paul talks about his spiritual pedigree and what he got saved from. Does Paul say, ah, I made it. Boy, I was a traitor, I was a blasphemer, I was all these wicked things. So now I've kicked it into neutral and I can just glide through the Christian life. It's pretty cool coming up I-65 sometimes. You've seen those gliders? Uh, the, I don't know what the official... I don't know if I'd want to do it, but you can go, I guess, and you can get on those gliders, and you see them sometimes coming up 65, and they're flying over the, uh, the, the fields over there. And we sometimes think that that's the way it can be in the Christian life. God, we get saved, and we get dropped from the 747, and we just glide through the Christian life, right? It's just smooth. Kind of just do whatever we want to do, go where we want to go, and hopefully we'll have a soft landing at the end because heaven's there for all of us who are truly saved. Is that the attitude? Is that how Paul wrote in Philippians 3? After he wrote, not having my own righteousness, we talked about it last week, Philippians chapter number 3, at the end of the, the message last Sunday morning. Philippians 3 and verse number 10, that I may know him. In the power of his resurrection, the fellowship of his sufferings being made conformable unto his death, if by any means I might attain unto the resurrection of the dead. Verse 12, what does Paul say? Not as though I had already attained, either were already perfect, but I follow after. After that, I may apprehend that for which also I am apprehended of Christ Jesus. Here's a man who also talked about dying daily, who wrote, I beseech you, therefore, brethren, by the mercies of God, that ye present your bodies a living, not a dead sacrifice, but a living sacrifice. Isn't it hard every day to climb up on that altar? It's hard, isn't it? We got so many things pulling from so many different directions. God asks for one day of the week that we give to him. And it's the hardest day of the week to get out of bed, hardest day of the week to get dressed, the hardest day of the week, I've got to go meet people. I've got to go talk to people. These are the greatest people on all the earth. They're our brothers and sisters in Christ that we worship with, right? But we have, the, we have to give ourselves a pep talk sometimes. Shame on us. Shame on us. We spend all week working with the, the world, and we have a, a place, a call. We have a, uh, an opportunity to evangelize and be salt and light in that place. But isn't there something wonderful and refreshing about coming to church and being with God's people and worshiping together with brothers and sisters in Christ who we've covenanted together, who are saved by the same blood of Jesus Christ? There is something special about that, especially in today's world when it just seems like everywhere you go, it stinks like weed and it looks like who knows what. I mean, in the... People are just, they're, they're, they're lost in their sin, and it's such a burden. But it's also motivating to come to church and to be with God's people and to be under the preaching and teaching of God's word and to fellowship together with our saints, our, brothers and, our fellow saints, brothers and sisters in Christ. What a joy that is. So we put our sin to death. Jerry Bridges says we cannot begin to deal with the activity of sin in our lives until we have first dealt with its guilt. Understanding that the only solution for the guilt of our sin is the blood of Jesus Christ. 
So the assurance that God no longer counts my sin against me assures me that what? That God is for me. Think about that for a moment before we finish the the quote. Does God want us to continue in our sin? He's doing everything in his power, understanding that tension between God is at work in us, both the will and the do of his good pleasure, while we work out our own salvation in fear and trembling. But God has called us to good works. We're not saved by our good works, but we are his workmanship created in Christ Jesus unto good works. So what is God constantly doing? He's constantly working on us to make us more like his son. Think about this as parents. We are such, I know I'm such a failure as a father in so many ways. But this drive and this determination as a father, I want my kids to grow up to serve the Lord. I want my kids to grow up and to be more than just respectable citizens. I want them to be Christian contributors I want them to be faithful servants. I want them to love God and to show that love and to serve the Lord. And it sometimes drives me crazy because I have to be careful because I want to try to make my kids be good Christians. If you get what I'm saying, okay? I have to lead and coach, and as they get older, I find myself doing more of the side management, coaching, coming, let's do a huddle, and let's do a little talk, and let's do the, right, the play-by-play. When they were younger, it was a lot more of just, come on, we're going. Now it's a little more of the side coaching, holy huddles, so to speak. Think about our God. He doesn't want us to go through the game of life and be making bad passes and striking out at the plate and ruining our life and sin. No, God wants us. If God be for us, who can be against us? So even the difficulties in our life, even the sufferings in our life are for what? That he be glorified and for our good, that we might be made into his image. And sometimes that's chastening. And sometimes that trial is just simply a test of our faith. It's the purging and the pruning. It's the refining. It's the crusty food that's on the plate that has to be rubbed off. And we have to do it. Got to get out the Brillo pad. Got to get out the steel wool sometimes, don't we? And God has to do that with our life. Because he loves us. Because he cares about us. Because he wants us to be Christ-like. He wants us to be holy. He's not against me. This produces gratitude for what he has done and is presently doing for me through Christ. Now, in the last few minutes that we have, let's do a real quick analogy or study of the seven churches in Revelation and how that relates to this area of progressive sanctification, our remedy, God's remedy for our sin. Okay? We'll look at these very, very quickly here. First of all, quick introductory statement. The Seven churches of Revelation give us an insight into how God deals with his children regarding their sin. Seven churches, local church bodies, again, showing God's love for his church. The universal church has not met yet. Okay? We have local assemblies, local churches, ecclesia, and we are one of them by the grace of God. And 
we thank the Lord for Berean Baptist Church. We are in Ecclesia. We're a local assembly of God's people. These seven churches help us in understanding how God deals with us. He knows our works, both good and bad. In Revelation chapter number 2, we can turn in our Bibles to Revelation chapters 2 and 3. Revelation chapter 2. We see in verses 1 through 3, in verse 19, and then in chapter 3, in verse number 8, we see that phrase, that statement made, I know thy works. God knows our works. He knows us. And when he knows us, sometimes he finds somewhat against us. I have somewhat against thee. There's some areas that need to be addressed. And then how are we to respond? Verse number 7. He that, had ear, he that hath ears to hear, let him hear. Listen up. Pay attention. I know you. There's some areas to work on. There's some areas of blessing, of compliment, of honor, of praise. Now hear what I have to say. So God knows us. So we're not hiding from him. We may hide it from a spouse. We may hide it from a parent. We may delete the history on our internet. We may go through and smash hard drives and find some sort of bleach on a hard drive. We can do all kinds of different things in this world to try to delete our sin or our sin, our activities that we think are hidden. But God knows. God knows us. Okay? But God also knows our trials. He knows what we're going through. He knows the difficulties that we face. He knows our tribulation, our poverty. Revelation 2 and verse number 9. Even where Satan's seat is, and thou holdest fast my name. Do we not feel like we're in a Revelation 2 and verse 13 time period? Where we, are, we feel like we're in Satan's seat? And we have to hold fast his name. <laughs> Don't we feel like that as we deal with so many things in our culture? We are thankful for some Supreme Court victories. We're thankful for some mercy, some grace of God in a couple of areas. We're thankful for that. But does that mean that The spiritual battles are are over? No, we still have to wrestle against principalities, against power, spiritual wickedness in heavenly places. Uh, The battle is not over. and We know who the victor is. We know who the winner is. But sometimes we feel like we're in Satan's seat. But we must hold fast his name. And God knows that. God knows our trials. God knows our desire for him and lack of desire for him. He knows that. Revelation 2, 3 and 4. We see it in other verses as well. We see the statement, hast labored and hast not fainted. But in the case of Ephesus, they had left their first love. And that's one of the biggest dangers for us as we are growing in our relationship with the Lord. And let me say it this way. As we continue, as we increase in our number of years of being a saved individual... What is the danger? To grow cold in our love. It's the danger in our marriages. To grow cold in our love. To let it wane. In Ephesus, the church of Ephesus was pointed out for having left their first love. So God knows our desire for him or lack thereof. Number four, God encourages us though. We see that in these verses 
2, 7, 10, 17, 24 through 28, which we had time to read all these, 3, 4, 10, 12, and 21. God encourages us. And then we also see that God helps us see when we're not right. Isn't this a blessing of God? Okay, I know we don't like pain. None of us are, 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 are fans of pain. Oh, I can't wait to have some pain later today. I can't wait to have a pain. No, we're not fans of pain. But is, is pain a, a blessing? It's a curse in, in some ways, right? But isn't it a blessing in other ways? Uh, Tony Dungy, who was the longtime coach of the Indianapolis Colts, uh, helped lead the Colts to a Super Bowl championship in 2007. He, uh, in his book, he I forget which book it was, um, Quiet Strength maybe, he describes one of his children as having a disorder where his child did not feel pain. Uh, I don't know if it was just certain parts of his body, but he, he gave an illustration of his child like reaching in the oven or reaching up and touching the stove top and didn't even know that his fingers were being burned because he didn't have pain. There were no nerves or something that was wrong in that, at least in his, his fingers, his hands. And he was destroying himself. They had to be extra careful because he wasn't experiencing pain. Like a, That's a blessing that when there's pain that it should cause us to fix, to do something about it. And sometimes there's pain in our life and it's God saying, hey, listen to me. I'm trying to help you to see what is not right. God warns us of what will happen if we don't change. Revelation 2 and verse number 5. Remember, therefore, from whence thou art fallen, and repent. We see that several places. And the warning, God wants us to get right. He warns us of what will happen if we don't change. And then finally, God reminds us that it's worthwhile to know him. Revelation 2 and verse number 7. He that hath an ear, let him hear what the Spirit saith unto the churches. To him that overcometh will I give to eat of the tree of life, which is in the midst of the paradise of God. Isn't it greater to eat of the tree of life in the paradise of God than to eat the rotten fruit of this world? We have a cherry tree in our front yard, and it produced some beautiful cherries. Uh, We had a few. We're not big cherry cobbler, cherry pie people. We let our neighbor come over and pick some. Sorry, I didn't announce it to the church. Uh, They were kind of sour. I don't know if any of you like cherries, but maybe next year uh, we can have a cherry picking uh, festival at our house or something if you like cherries. Our neighbor came over and got some. But there was a season where they were bright and they were colorful and they were ripe for the picking. And again, they were a little sour, but they were edible. But after that little season of uh, fruit bearing was over, they dropped to the ground, and they were putrid, Ugh, just nasty all over the ground. The birds loved them. Our dumb dog thought it was fun to eat. <laughs> but I couldn't help but think, aren't we like the dumb dog who goes, and we want to eat the rotten cherries off the ground of the world? When we've got the tree of life, the fruit of the holiness of God, the righteousness, the obedience, the blessing that God has got hanging from the tree right there. And we're down scurrying on the ground like our dumb dog trying to eat the rotten fruit that's on the ground. And God doesn't want us to live that way. He reminds us that it's worthwhile to know him. So I hope this has been an encouragement. Next week, Lord willing, we'll get into an introduction on spiritual gifts. 
and we'll work our way through that. But so thank you for being here this morning. Let's pray, and then we'll get ready for the service to follow. Lord, we thank you for the truth of your word. Thank you for these uh, lessons, uh, even from these churches in Revelation that show us, remind us how much you love us and how much you desire for us to be holy and obedient and faithful people. Thank you, Lord, for the rain this week. Thank you, Lord, for the fellowship that we're to have together here in a little while. But now we ask that, Lord, you will bless this service uh, and bless, Lord, the fellowship afterward and the food together. And pray to bless every aspect of this uh, coming service, the music, the preaching, uh, the giving, every aspect of it to your glory. Uh, finger your word into our hearts and make us more like you, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. All right, we'll start the service in about 15 minutes. <laughs>